and uh, play, play funny games. <laughs> One of the funny games um, we play is we, we can obsess about things for and against and then not harmonize well. And as, as Aaron uh, was kind of sharing about that song, it kind of reminded me of one of those things that I've experienced in the Christian church. The God of the Bible, going all the way back to Moses, when the people of Israel came to the mountain at Mount Sinai, the mountain trembled, and the people were afraid. They were in awe of it. It was a scary thing. Um, and they, they shrunk back from that. And then Moses, who was the only one who was supposed to have seen God's face, but, but didn't really see his face, just saw God passing by. Nobody really sees God kind of and lives um, in his holiness. And, and so there's this sense in the God of the Old Testament, you, you can't be flippant about that. And so in Hebrews, it talks about our God being a consuming fire and, and carries that theme through. And so with worship songs, there's a lot of times we'll sing songs, I want to touch you, I want to see your face. And we can be so glib about it. And so one camp of Christianity kind of says we're taking God and we're just missing that he's a consuming fire. We're missing that God is holy and pure and that we're sinners. We're missing when Peter said, you know, I'm unworthy. And, and when uh, Isaiah says, you know, I'm not, I'm not clean. I'm a man of unclean lips. And we miss that holiness and so one side's like, we shouldn't be singing those songs. We shouldn't be singing those songs. <clears throat> and then the other side, I think, is, no, we need to have that intimacy. We need to have that intimacy. We need to have that intimacy with God. He's our Abba Father. And, and what we miss is the, in the resolution of this kind of debate is that God, no one has seen him face to face. And he is holy and he is a consuming fire. But the one who has seen him face to face and came from the Father, Jesus, was somebody that welcomed us trying to touch him. A woman clawing through a crowd to just touch the hem of his garment. And she's unclean and everyone's like, what are you doing? And Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. You're just so desperate for me that you're willing to try and touch me and and people tearing through roofs to try and let down friends who are sick or ill and just to see Jesus or to catch a glimpse of him or to be with him. And, and what we miss in the tension of this is that a, a holy God who is other than us did send his son so that we could see his face and touch him. And what we miss in that is what makes Christianity Christianity. We miss we miss the triune God, we miss the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We, we, we have to begin to think about these things so that we understand that in the complexity, there's such a simplicity that speaks so deeply to our hearts. And so we can desperately reach out for God because we've, we've got this tangible representation of Christ in front of us. C.S. Lewis said when he was an atheist and an agnostic, he didn't believe in God because didn't believe in Christ because um, he likened it to Shakespeare and he said how would Hamlet ever know Shakespeare you just there's just such a a distance between the author and what the author created or wrote you know what I'm talking about there's this gap how can Hamlet ever know Shakespeare and so Lewis was saying I was comfortable being an agnostic within this metaphor and and then when he became a Christian he he did it again within this metaphor and realized that if Shakespeare 
wrote himself into a play so that there was an exact representation of himself in the play so that Shakespeare was moving around in the story and could interact with Hamlet, then Hamlet could know Shakespeare through Shakespeare the character, through the incarnate, the, the being written into, into the flesh in the story, representation of himself. And Lewis was like, that's what God did. And we're able to touch it, and we're able to interact with Christ, and we're able to see the beauty of that, and, and it's so full. And one of the things that I've just been struggling with this morning is, I got a message I want to preach. I've never had this thought before, but I, have a, I know what I want to preach. I have a message I think that the church community, like the health of Antioch, needs me to preach. And I feel like I understand where the audience is coming from, where you guys are coming from, where, where the body's coming from, and what would resonate most with where you're at. And then I, I honestly, this morning, struggling the whole morning, feel like I know what God wants me to preach. And I keep feeling like God, just in a really quiet voice, is saying, like, that trumps the others. <laughs> you know, and I keep wrestling, well, how does that fit into one of the others? Because I need a sermon. God's like, yep, that's not the question. It's not what, um, what I'm asking you to hear. I want you to talk about what I want to talk about. I'm like, okay, that's great. What am I supposed to say about that? Um, and I don't know what to say about it. What I, the word is honesty. Uh and so I feel really weak because I'm like, man, God, who can I grab that knows what to say about honesty that, that could just jump up on stage and give a sermon? I don't know what you want me to say about honesty, you know. What I don't think, my, well, my wife knows this, a lot of my good friends know this, but I don't know that the church knows it. I wrestle with what we're supposed to talk about on Sunday mornings more than anyone I know. It tears my, it's why I only preached 20 times this year. It tears my family up on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays when I'm preaching because I just wrestle and wrestle. It's, that's what I do. Because to me, there's nothing more important in my life than what we come together and talk about at a spiritual level at the center of our church. And in Peter, it says, speak as if you're sp speaking the very words of God. And so, I, I mean... So I don't know how that would feel to you, but so I wrestle with that. God, what are we supposed to talk about? What are we supposed to talk about? Um, so I think I got the answer. Just don't know what the message is. I think that maybe I'm a verbal processor, so if you guys will indulge me, I'm going to maybe just wrestle this sermon out as if my wife was, you were my wife, because she likes to listen to me, or at least tolerates it. Um, here's, the, here's the thing we were thinking the other night. So Friday night, we're sitting there late. 11.30 at night is when I texted H. Hey, H, could we do communion Sunday? He got right back to me, and I'm like, what's he doing still up? Um, here's the thought. There's no place more likely or even comfortable or where you, you would be okay seeing sick people than a hospital, right? You go to the hospital, you just, you're just okay seeing sick, pe sick people. 
I mean, you expect to see it. You're okay with it. It doesn't freak you out. So the question, I was saying to Tamara, I was like, hey, shouldn't the church be the place where you would expect to see sinners or be most comfortable seeing sinners? Right? I mean, the, the church is the body of Christ, and there was nowhere where you expected sinners to be more comfortable and at peace or, or received better than at the feet of Christ. I mean, right there at his feet in an awkward social setting, you know. And, and Jesus didn't just deal with, like, the person. He dealt with the awkward social setting and, like, and pushed back on it. I mean, it was the most comfortable place. And so the church is the body of Christ. And it talks about Christ as the head of this body. Like, in other words, he directs, he moves. He's the one that kind of gives us our marching orders. We're his body, his hands and his feet. And so I was kind of asking Tamara, shouldn't it be that there's no more comfortable place to be as a sinner than at church? And Tamara's like, yeah, it makes sense. But can you know that isn't the way it is? Why is that? So I was kind of wrestling with this idea, why is it not the most comfortable place? Church, churches aren't naturally authentic. We're not naturally authentic. And I think it's because we, we miss grace. In all our talking about the oughts and the shoulds in and what it would look like to be moral or what it would look like to be, to be Christian, we kind of begin to think of all the things that, that shape us and define us and, and all the little customs and, and religious things. And in doing that, we think we ought to be that. And in doing that, we begin to think we do that. And we begin to think that there's a certain kind of level of goodness. And then when someone comes in who doesn't fit that, we see it and we spot it right away and we label it. That's what it looks like to be not good. That's what it looks like to be bad. That's what it looks like to be messy. That's what it looks like to be a sinner. And have you ever walked into church and felt that way? Like, man, how do I hide? <laughs> you know, it's like, how do, I, how do I not let everyone know how much of a sinner I am? Maybe I should have worn different clothes taking out the plugs in my ears, you know, um, cover my tattoos. I don't know. Like those things have anything to do with actual state of your heart. But we, we kind of come in that way. I was asked last week at Redux, what's the biggest area that the church just in America, the church in America just gets it wrong? So the question was, in, in America, the church, church in America, what's the biggest thing where we just get it wrong? And my answer was, we just miss the Holy Spirit. So I was talking about God the Father, God the Son, right? There's also the Spirit that's not out there that like is in here and animates us and gives us the ability to have life because we just can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You know, we're, I get it, we're Americans. It doesn't matter. Gravity still works the same. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The Holy Spirit animates us and is supposed to animate the church. And I said, that's what we miss. I think there's something else that we miss. And it's sin. We, we don't get sin. We're going to do, uh, in a couple weeks, uh, I've got a trip, and then when, we get, when I get back from that, we're going to launch into a seven-week series on the seven deadly sins because it just seemed really cool. But, 
um, on a different level, I just don't think we get sin. See, we define sin, I think, in our gut as people who break the law. People who go to jail, convicts. That's, that's what sin is. People who do bad things, really bad things. And then the rest of us, we, we, we come to God and we come to church and, and our felt level of what the problem is with the world is the circumstances out here, the, the, the problems out here, the people out here, the mess out here. That's, our, that's how we frame everything is we come and it's out here. It's not in here. Because we don't get sin, we don't get what the problem really is. G.K. Chesterton was, a, you know, the great writer, journalist in England, was one time asked to do an essay on what is wrong with the world. So he gets this letter, they didn't have emails, he gets this letter and, you know, asking him to do this essay and he responds with the letter and he says, Dear sir, in response to your, your question, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. It kind of became one of the hallmark things of him was this answer that, that I am what's wrong with the world. We are what's wrong with the world. You are what's wrong with the world. Our brokenness, our sin, our mess is what's wrong with the world. You've heard me say it before, but C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the Space Trilogy, the first, the first volume of the Space Trilogy is Out of the Silent Planet, and he's kind of saying there's... There's people on Mars. It's a, it's a science fiction. It's cool. Science fiction's okay in Christianity, I think. Um, I once knew a children's minister that said, all imagination is out of bounds. We can only tell the kids true things. And I was just like, man, C.S. Lewis would not have liked her, right? Um, but the space trilogy, there's Mars and there's, there's Earth, and Earth is the silent planet. It's dark. No light comes out of it because it has sin. It fell. And on Mars, there was no original sin. And so C.S. Lewis has this character, Ransom. It's modeled after his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a linguist. So the character in the novel is a linguist. And he's with these people on Mars who have never known sin. And he learns their language and finds out that there is no word for sin because they've never had it. So he's trying to describe the silent planet and he uses their word bent. And he says the people, the Hana on that planet, are bent. I love that picture of sin. We're broken, we're messy, we're bent, and it starts there, not out here. You see, sin at its core breaks relationship. I don't know that we think about this. We think it's an action that's wrong. And the truth is, no. Sin is a breach in relationship. The Ten Commandments, they all have to do with relationship, right? Every one of them, your relationship with God, so don't have an idol. Your relationship with, with other people, so don't steal, don't commit adultery. So this action does what? It harms people. It destroys unity. The action is a means to the end of destruction and, and destroying things. Satan, Jesus said, comes like a thief to kill and to steal and destroy. 
One of the the biggest things that he does to destroy things is what? Use our sin. And our sin isn't just breaking tax codes and offending the government, this ethereal thing that we can't really get our arms around. Sin is, is, are the things, gossip, slander, hatred, laziness. It's the things that destroy relationship rather than building it up and creating unity. Sin violates relationship. So much to the degree that in the, the Old Testament, God has a prophet go and marry an adulteress in the book of Hosea. And he's saying, I'm going to make a really crappy example out of your life. I want everyone to get it very, very graphically. And so this man of God goes and marries a woman who's going to continue and repeatedly commit uh, infidelity. And God has this man, Hosea, go marry this woman, and then he says, this is how the nation of Israel is to me. He doesn't say, Israel commits sins. You know, I mean, the good, you know, in, in days old, I would have said the good Baptist face, but that does an injustice to Baptists. So I don't know, just think of, and then I always say it, and it's like I said it, um, but just think of like frowny Christians, you know? Just super moralistic. You know, God didn't just come like a frowny Christian and go, you guys are sinners. You're bad people. God's like, man, you, you, you want to know how much it hurts me when you sin? When you sin, you choose the love of another over my love. You choose to love something that takes you away from my love. You choose to give yourself to something that means that you take yourself away from me. You give yourself. And it's, it's as if you're unfaithful. And it destroys me. It destroys relationship. And we, we get so high-centered on thinking that sin is an action that we miss that sin fundamentally destroys relationship. Do you know that the word infidelity, you know what the word fidelity means? Fidelity means faithful. From the Latin fide. It's faith, faithful. What's the opposite of sin? If sin is being unfaithful, and breaking relationship, I'm being unfaithful in my relationship with you, civically, if I steal from you, or as brothers and sisters in Christ, or as someone made in the image of God, if I sin against you, it's being unfaithful to my God, unfaithful to my Christianity, unfaithful to this community, unfaithful to you as an individual. When I commit a sin, I'm being unfaithful in in destroying something. The opposite of sin is what? Faith. Turn to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 3. 
Hey, Kip. Are you, is Kip back there? I got no clock up here, which is a really, really bad thing. <laughs> Moses and the Israelites are kind of the metaphor for all of God's children, for faith, for, for everything. And in chapter 3, it talks about Jesus being greater than Moses. And I want to just begin reading in chapter 7, and it says, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7 of Hebrews, and it says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is the Israelites in the desert, where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. There I was, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Skipping down to verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their sin? Does someone have their Bible open? What's the actual word? Their unbelief. So logically... They sinned. They were disobedient. So we see that these Israelites, for 40 years in the desert, they weren't able to enter the promised land because of what's the logical thing to say there. But that's not what it says. It says their unbelief. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, unbelief is, is synonymous with sin. So what's the opposite of sin? Belief, faith, trust. Being united to God in our faith, having that relationship because we're willing to be obedient because we trust Him. That's That's faith. The opposite of that is, I don't believe you, God. I don't believe your promises. I don't believe that obeying you is going to get me where I need to go. I don't believe that this will work. In, in fact, I believe something else, and I'm going to do this thing. Sin. Sin is unbelief. <clears throat> so, 
Hosea marries an unfaithful woman that, that is the picture of faithful, uh, un, how Israelites are unfaithful. There's infidelity. Infidelity, we know that, like cheating on somebody, means unfaithfulness. The opposite of that, faith, fide, means you're faithful. Faithfulness is a relational word, is it not? If you turn to Galatians chapter 5 for me. There's three relationships that you can talk about. Well, there's more. It just depends on how, how broadly you want to go with it. But I have a relationship with myself. I honestly relate. That's one of the interesting things about being made in the image of God is, is there's me, and then I've got this ability to relate to myself in a certain way, to choose things for myself, to direct my life, to architect my life. There's a relationship there. I have a relationship with others, with you, with community, with people. I have a relationship with God. You could go further and say we have a relationship with the environment. We have, you know, but those are the primary relationships, right? With myself, with others, and with God. Listen to the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5. Let's, uh, uh, let's start actually in verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 5 in Galatians says, If you are led by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God is helping you follow God, then you're not under the law. There's a relationship going on that's different than religion. It says, Now the works of the flesh, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. Which one of those can you talk about devoid of relationship? Devoid of the context of a relationship with me and my own life and body, or me with God or me with others? Which one of those can you talk about in isolation? Sin isn't about actions, like cheating on your taxes. It's about a brokenness, a messiness, a bentness in us that leads us to choose things and actions that destroy relationship rather than choosing to be obedient to things that build unity and build relationship. So now here comes the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, chapter 5, is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all relational traits with relational fruit. Do you see that? And it says here, against such things there is no law. There's never a time when it's wrong to be loving, gentle, patient, kind. There's never a time when it's wrong. It's always right. You know, Christians are so 
interested in running around figuring out what the, the latest thing is or the latest book or the latest, what would God say to me? Give me, a, give me that one, one word. I did that this morning, didn't I? Honest. Um, you know, but we're, we're like, what's the latest and greatest will, your will for my life? You know, and I think half the time God's going, you know what? There's a, a dozen things that are never wrong. And you're putting no energy into those things. Following me, never wrong. Giving to people, giving your life away to people less privileged than you, never wrong. Humility, never wrong. Saying you're sorry, never wrong. It's never a time in the Bible where God's like, I'm disgusted with you. Why would you do that? Why would you say you're sorry and ask forgiveness? You were 70% right in that fight. <laughs> Dig your heels in, buck up, be a man, and duel it out. It's never wrong to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me. So what I'm trying to argue right this second is when we're clamoring for things from God, do we realize there are things at every moment that are never wrong and build relationship between us and us, us and God, us and others? In 1 Corinthians, Jesus or Paul is dealing with a church that clamors for things from God. And they're clamoring for things that are not always for everyone. They're clamoring for spiritual gifts. I want the gift of prophecy. I want the gift of healing. I want to be the, the leader. I want to be the one singing. I want to be the one orchestrating that ministry. I want to be the one doing whatever. I want that role that, that obviously everyone in the body can't do. And so he gives an analogy in chapter 12 of eyes and hands and feet. And he's saying they're different pieces of a body. All equally valuable, but different. And he's saying we're all parts of the body and we all need each other, but we're different. Listen to what he says right here. Chapter 12, verse 26. If, well, let me pull back to like verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Again, unity, that the body wouldn't be destroyed. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, will be built up in love. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We're different, you and me. We're different. We have different roles. But we're one, you and I. We're one. And Paul's saying, so why are you, why are you using the roles that need to be in the church? God is giving those roles so that it can function. God's doing it for good that the body might have what it needs. Why are you using what God created for good to create division and destroy the body of God? It's because we're bent 
And we have envy and jealousy and impatience, right? What is the greatest problem with Antioch? Thank you. I thought the same thing. (laughs) Greatest problem with Antioch is us. It's not that Justin doesn't sing the right songs, whether we do worship before or after, or whether Ken threw his sermon out the window and ad hoc preached. (sighs) What kind of Bible teaching is that? Do you want to know the number one criticism I get? is that we don't do verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. It's the number one criticism I get. And my answer is, show me one place where Jesus went verse by verse, book by book, or even quoted more than two verses in a row. Or that Paul, when he wrote to Corinthians, didn't start with where that church was at. Try and ground something in Scripture... And say with the authority of Scripture that God wants to speak to us because we need to build each other up more than tear each other down. Now there's different styles and there's a value to verse by verse, book by book. There's a value to it. But Jesus Christ would not come down. I I would stake my life on this. this, I shouldn't say that. It's a lot. I am pretty confident that Jesus wouldn't come down today and say, the biggest issue I have, Ken, is that you're not going verse by verse through Lamentations. Because there's a lot of hurting people that have lost their houses, gotten divorces, or just had somebody die, and they need that third chapter of Lamentations because last week you were in the second chapter. Now, there's great things in going verse by verse, book by book, but what Jesus would say is, Ken, I care about your faithfulness as a church. I don't care how exciting you are or what formulas you're using, but Ken, just like your home, the White's home on Greatwood Loop, the thing that matters most is not what's fantastic and sensational. What matters most is what's boring and simple and healthy the day-to-day faithfulness and unity. Ken, this is my body. I want him to get. So here's what Paul says. You guys know this passage. It's famously out of context used. So after responding to how we're bringing division with all these gifts, it's different gifts. Here's what Paul says. He says, but... And this, all this silly talk, <laughs> earnestly desire the higher gifts. There's a lot of things we can do that are never wrong, and there's a lot of gifts we can ask for from God that are never wrong. They're called higher gifts. You want to know why? They're never wrong, and they're open to anyone. Not everyone can be the teacher, the worship pastor, the Sunday school class worker, the administrator. But everyone can do these. He says, earnestly, earnestly. That means you go home today and sweat over it and ask for it and demand it from God and say, I want these gifts. And then chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, he says, this is what these gifts are. If I speak in tongues, 
one of the gifts that you think is really cool. If I speak in the tongues of, of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, another gift you think is really cool, and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, which means I can do miracles, which is another thing you guys think are really cool, Paul says, but I have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I fought with my brothers and sisters like a child. I destroyed community like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know full, fully, even as I have been fully known by him. Conclusion. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. I mean, that's literally what it says there. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You want to know the gift that is open to all of us? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and charity, if you're coming from a Catholic background. These are the greatest, and they build relationship. Faith is a relational quality. Hope ties us to something at the center that says there's no random thing where we're pulling all different directions. We're all aimed in the shared hope we have of the coming again of Christ and that we will all go to be with God because in his house there are many rooms. And we're all aiming at the same point and it unifies us and brings us together and builds us up and then love and the greatest of these is love. Why? Because it's the nature of love to bind two things together. Love in unity, love in health go hand in hand. Turn to Galatians with me, would you? Back to Galatians if you kept your finger there. In Acts, you have this healthy picture of a church and you have Jews and Gentiles eating together, which you're not supposed to do. It made, made the Jews ceremonially unclean, meaning like according to their customs, it was impure. So they weren't supposed to do it. So you have this great thriving church in, in uh, Antioch and Jews and Gentiles are eating together. Relationship is prevailing over religion. It's authentic. It's the healthiest place to be if you're a sinner in need of grace. It's the spiritual hospital. And then some people come from Jerusalem and they say, from the, the, the sect of the Pharisees, and they say, no, 
This cannot be. You have to have those Gentiles also follow the law. It's Jesus plus the law is what these Pharisees were saying. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. The whole book of Galatians is really an argument against this. But let's read in chapter 2 of Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, that's the apostle Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, these legalistic guys, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, then, when they came, because of culture and public opinion, he drew back and he separated himself And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. They were not authentic. There was a division in their hearts. They were untrue. Do you know that truth and authenticity have a lot to do with each other? Truth is with logical theorems and propositions, statements, doctrines. Authenticity is being true with what's real and how you're ordering your life that those two things harmonize. It's subjective truth. I'm living out those creeds authentically. And I'm not putting up a mask and being hypocritical. That's why Jesus, when he was always asked about doctrines or creeds, would usually answer with an ethical parable. Because Jesus is like, man, I'm more interested in the fact that you aren't doing what you say is true. You are untrue. And this happened here. And Peter and Barnabas got led astray and there's hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, their conduct was was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, meaning you, you lean on grace, then how can you force Gentiles to live like a Jew, meaning obey some kind of ceremonial law or custom religion we ourselves are jews by birth and not gentiles yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in jesus christ so we also have believed in christ jesus in order to be justified by faith in christ and not by works not by the law Because by the works of the law, following religious dictates, no one will be justified, made just, made right with God. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Is is Christ serving sin by, by justifying us even though we don't deserve it? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's what you need to hear, verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died to myself so that I can be, in some sense, united with him and given a new nature, made alive, and I, I rise with him in some sense. I'm now a Christian I am in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The things I do, the obedience I do, the good works I do are actually just my faith and my trust and my relationship, my connection, my fidelity to God. They're not earning me anything. It's me running after God like a little kid who's looking up to somebody. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness, if justification, if justice were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It is Jesus plus nothing. So when these people came to Antioch and they said, hey, it's Jesus plus this, it's like someone coming to me and saying, Ken, you're doing church all wrong. It's Jesus plus verse-by-verse teaching. And without the plus, it's wrong. Or it's Jesus plus worship without music because God wouldn't want instruments. And if you don't do the plus, it's wrong. Jesus would be mad at you. He'd have a frowny face. These are all good things and they're stylistic and there's arguments for the value of different ones. But it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's, Jesus. it's his grace that saves us. Plus Nothing. It's not do all you can and then grace will save you. It's grace. What is the problem with this church? We are. What is the problem with your marriage? What is the problem with you as a parent? My six year old's bent nature. Why is Antioch not the healthiest church in America? Let me tell you the the wrong answer. Because the staff isn't better. What are 99% of the complaints that we get at Antioch, and it's probably true of most churches, that if only the staff did more, or did this, or didn't do that, or did better, we'd be a healthier church. I I feel like using an expletive. What will make this body, this community, the healthiest that it can be? Every single one of us, starting with what's right here. Our own sin, our own messiness, our own need for grace. The realization that we break and destroy relationship and community in so many subtle little ways and then aren't honest with it. We're not really authentic. We're not true about what's real. We're not humble. And when we don't have grace here, if we don't understand our own sin and our own messiness that we're bent, if we don't understand that we need grace, not the dude that came in late, You know, we all know what his problem is. If we don't realize our need for grace, then we're not going to go, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. We're going to go, yeah, it's Jesus, plus this really cool thing that I'm good at. And you guys should be better at this too. Just saying. 
And if, if we do this and we think we're earning God's favor, we're not going to really have grace in here animating us. We're trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we need grace here. Why do we need grace here? Because we need grace here to fix my relationship with myself, my relationship with God, my relationship with you. If we don't have grace here, we're not going to have grace here. The most legalistic people that come to me with complaints, you know what I've begun to realize? So let this be a warning. I begin to realize after a while with all the criticisms, if I don't sense grace here, it means there's not grace here. It means they're operating under some kind of a legalistic system with duties, expectations, right and wrong, oughts and musts. So if you come to me with criticisms, I'm just going to trace it back and realize that you're a sinner. I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to take communion. The band's going to come back up if they can. Here's what communion is. Communion is Christ plus nothing. It is the thing that God gave us that we can do. It's a tangible action to remind us that we've been made clean, not because of any scrubbing we did, but because of Christ and what he did, because of grace Communion reminds us of Jesus dying on the cross. And before that, it reminded the Israelites of when God freed them out of slavery in Egypt. This reminds us that we've been set free. And Jesus said, if you've been set free, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You're free to be messy. You're free to celebrate Christ's righteousness and his grace. This is what this commemorates. I once was leading communion at a Baptist church in California. I had to hold a microphone and I had to hold my Bible in these fingers. So I had these two fingers together and I was talking the whole time. And I was trying to tell them in the Baptist tradition, I, I learned that it was hurry up and make yourself pure. We're about to take communion. Pray and confess all your sins so that you're pure enough to go take communion. And I told everyone, that's missing the point. Communion is, is all about that you aren't pure enough. Yet, you're made pure in Christ. It's not about hurrying up and working yourself clean so that you can come and remind yourself that you've been made clean already. It's coming and realizing that you've been made clean already so that you can just marvel in grace and in the beauty of salvation. And I was doing this and I was so getting into it that everyone, my friends, was laughing in the back. And I'm like, why are they laughing during communion? I, I guess they said it looked like I was smoking a joint the whole time. <laughs> but as you come for communion, we're going to, you take the bread, there's wine, because that's how it started. Okay? Doesn't matter what John MacArthur says, that's how it started. And there's grape juice, because Mr. Welch in the 1800s created grape juice specifically so that there could be an alternative to wine at communion. Did you know that? And we're just saying, look, we don't care about, the, we want you to connect with the idea that this is the body and the blood of Christ. You need to value it so much that you do not spill it anywhere. <laughs> or this will be the last time we have Christ only um, in the theater. In all seriousness, let me just try and wrap this up, and then I want to pray, and here's the instructions. I want to do this well. We're going to have to come down the center and then around, 
If you don't want to come, that's fine. If you want to sit and pray, that's fine. Um, and we're going to do Redux later today. If you want to sit and pray in the auditorium as long as you want, you can. But come down. Maybe even hold the bread out for somebody else because this really is about community and us doing this together. Dip the bread in one of those cups and just the whole idea is one of remembrance. We used to call this a sacrament and then in the Protestant tradition we started calling it communion and the definition for communion means to engage in a sacrament, which is kind of funny, but we wanted to get away from sacrament because it sounded too Catholic. But the reality is the word sacrament is the true thing. Sacrament means this, that this is something that has been ordained as a means of grace, something that God built into the life of the church that when we partake it, it reminds us and allows us to experience the grace of God in our lives. It's a means of grace. And so as you come forward, just remember, this is what reminds me that I've been made clean even though I'm messy. This is what reminds me that it is Christ and Christ alone that is the author of my salvation. Um, let me pray for us, and then the band's going to sing. And I just invite you to come when you're comfortable, just as you are. Father, it's a strange request, but I just pray that word honesty on all of us. What is true at the core of who we are, let us know it, and let us be honest, and let us be okay seeing our own junk. Because if we can't see that, we're just not going to get how amazing grace is. If we, can't, if we can't resonate with sin or that we're sinners, we're not going to see ourselves in need of salvation. So just let us be humble. Let us be honest. Let us realize all the subtle little ways that our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes destroy community in your church and our families. Help us just to repent, which means to grieve and to be sad and just to have sorrow over that. That we may authentically come and throw ourselves at the cross by remembering communion this morning. Just fill this room with your presence now, we pray in Christ's name.